Hello, everyone. Brian Vickers here. I am um, professor of New Testament at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I'm sitting in my office right now. Um, just to give you a little bit of background, I've been involved uh, in GMHC since I think 2007. I think that's right. Uh, something like that, uh, where a colleague of mine was asked to speak and he couldn't do it. And I subbed for him, and so that's that's how it all started, right? I got I got to play a sort of like I came in as a sub, and you know once I get my foot in the door, I just I just kind of hang around, and that's what's happened. And so one of the things that I've always emphasized, and I think I've I think I've spoken at I've spoken at every conference in, in breakout sessions anyway since uh, you know 2007, and one of the things that I'm often asked to talk about is you know, the a theology of missions, which is one of my favorite topics. So I, I'm a New Testament professor, but um, I've done, you know, pretty significant short-term travel in various parts of South Asia and East Asia, and then in uh, Western Europe in various sorts of capacities, sometimes leading trips, um, teaching, uh, evangelism, discipleship, um, in all kinds of different settings. And one of the things I like to talk about uh, with people, especially people in a missions conference, is how do we think biblically about missions? You know, do we have a theology of missions? Uh, and you'll notice my title, uh, Biblical Theology of Missions, Knowing, Living, and Telling the Mighty Works of God. That phrase, the mighty works of God, comes from the very first Christian sermon that Peter preached, you know, um, at Antioch, and you can read about it because you have people from all over the place, uh, and they're amazed. Uh, you can read about this it's just in chapter one. Um, I guess I could just share that share that with you. Uh, you'll have to forgive me. I'm very much a live person, and uh, this is somewhat challenging for me. Um, so, yeah, in 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 chapter one. Peter and the apostles, you know, they appear and everybody hears them speaking in their own language. Um, and it says, this is starting in verse 5 of chapter 2, I think I said chapter 1. Uh, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, that is the sound of the disciples, right? The multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed um, and astonished, saying, are all these who are speaking not Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and resident, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, uh, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And then later, later Peter will Peter will repeat, he will repeat this um, this statement or this phrase in 2:22 in the middle of his sermon. Um, saying, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the divine plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Right. So this phrase, the mighty works of God, it is it is hardwired in to a biblical theology of missions. Right. Because Peter um, in just that little part I read, Peter, Peter puts the life ministry, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus into into something of a story um, that he's that he's that he's telling. And when I think of a biblical theology of missions, at the most fundamental level, I think of a story. Now, not just a story, however, that we just sort of sit back. And this is the important part. 
I'm sitting in a reclining chair. I should probably stop it because it's going to go back and forth, but that's okay. Um, when I say story, what I, I, I of course mean something absolutely historical, absolutely true, right? But I'm just using the word story because, you know, we, we tell story. I tell stories about myself all the time um, and, you know, they're, they're true. And so when I say story, I mean the historically revealed and um, shared story in the Bible that points to Jesus and God's plan of redemption in him. Um, now, but it's not just a story that we kind of sit back as objective observers and kind of look at. The thing about a biblical, I think, a biblical theology of missions is that it's a story that we are called into um, and that we're made part of, not just observers of it, but that we're called into it because it is part of this larger story of what God has been, is, and will do in this world, what he was doing when he created it and why, and then into the future, right? Um, eternity future, if you will. So, you know, the story of missions is, is a large part of that. Now, there's more to say about biblical theology, but we're specifically concerned about a biblical theology of missions. Um, so, first slide. Several years ago, I was on a mission trip, and I was speaking to a, uh, a missionary, and he had he had gone to seminary, um, not not this seminary, but one sort of related to it. And we were talking, and it was a pretty amiable conversation. We had we had just met, so it was like the first hour we'd been talking. And he was asking me about what I do and my background, and and then he just all of a sudden looked at me and said, "I am so glad that years ago." I decided to become a practitioner instead of a theologian. Well, you know, I'm not the sharpest guy in the room, but it wasn't really hard to sort of pick up what that guy was laying down when he said the statement. Um, so if you think about it, though, um, when you say practitioner or theologian, right, my question is, why are those the options? Why is it either or? Why is it presenting those two things as, you know, one of these things is not like the other, right? You either practice or you're a theologian. Well, my, my view is this, and that is if you're a Christian and whatever you're practicing, in this case missions, you're doing it theologically. You have a theology, uh, you know, whether it's, whether it's formal or whether it's... Um, something that maybe you would articulate in detail. The thing is, it's all theologically motivated. It just kind of depends on what we mean by this, but I think we're all sort of familiar with this kind of dichotomy, if you will, of practitioner or theologian or academic, right? Um, and when you say not a theologian, when this guy shared this with me, he wasn't simply giving a description, right? I mean, it was clearly a commentary on how one thing in the real world is better than another, right? So the translation, you see, I, I now change it to academic, is you're either a real person out there doing real stuff or you're an egghead, right? Um, you're either in the real world out doing the real work or you're in an ivory tower, like maybe in an academic office surrounded by books and things like a picture of Martin Luther looking over your shoulder or something like that, right? Um, now, I just want to say right off the bat, I'm not here to defend myself uh, or anything like that. It's just I've, I've thought and reflected about this conversation so many times because I've had lots of different versions of it, and I can completely understand where it comes from, right? Because we all know stereotypes exist because they're something real. Um, they're, they're based in reality. Otherwise, there would be no stereotypes, right? So um, we all know, and I know personally, um, People who are very, very deep and sort of so buried in kind of uh, theory and ideas that they never kind of burst out of that bubble. Well, I mean, I think in God's kingdom, there's a place for everyone and everyone has different gifts. And honestly, I just, I just don't really like to talk about the distinctions between being this or that when really 
it's we're called to be whatever God has called us to be, and we're called to be faithful in doing that, right? Uh, and of course, for all of us as Christians, faithful in doing that includes to whatever capacity that God gives us and whatever opportunities God gives us, the telling and sharing of the story, right? So if, if, if theologian or academic meant only ever being in a room, basically isolated by yourself and only ever talking to, to people uh, who are exactly like you and never really getting that message out, okay, then I would get it. But the fact is the vast majority of, um, in fact, everybody I work with here and the vast majority of people I know, it's not sort of the stereotype. And then, you know, and on the other side, just because people are out there practicing something that doesn't immediately make it everything it could be right so anyway i just wanted to kind of start with that it's a little bit of an icebreaker um think about the word theology sometimes we shy away from it uh because it sounds kind of technical and again it kind of sounds like the the thing that oh, oh we're going to get bogged down and we're never going to get out of this we just need to go do something well the thing is is we all go do something based on some sort of theology so at its basic most basic level theology uh is often referred to as god talk right if you just break the word into theo and logi like for um speech god speech or god talk and that's fine that's a, that's a fine definition i have no problem with that or talk about god i think that's a that's a little better because that's you know theology is our talking about god um or talking about god not much difference between those two and i think those are okay but what i would say is this theology is simply this it is the christian belief about god and his ways and works as taught in the scripture right so it's not just kind of statements about god it is that but it's to be biblical, it has to be statements about God and his ways and his works as revealed or taught in scripture, right? Like when Peter says, the, you know, uh, a man attested you by mighty works, or when the, when the people heard the disciples and said, we can hear them talking about the mighty works of God. They weren't just talking about statements about God, but specifically, you know, God's mighty works. So it's, it's active, right? So when we're talking about theology, we're talking about God's actions and, of course, who he is and then it's the this is important right it's the spoken and or written expressions of those beliefs right so again when i think about theology i don't just think about i don't just think about sort of a book of theology right there's lots of great books on theology i'm just saying i don't only think of that but i think about how we express those whether or not we're academically trained or formally trained is is in for our purposes, completely beside the point. It is how we know the story of God and his mighty works in the Bible and how we express and talk about that. Um, it's, it's, it's really that simple. So, you know, I really do believe, though, that if I had if I had said in that original conversation I told you about, hey, here's what I think about theology, I have no doubt because I know the guy really well and we continued to have conversations after that and we were we, we were we, we were friends. We've sort of lost contact because he lives in some undisclosed part of the world right now. Um, but nevertheless, I'm positive that if I had said, hey, here's what I hear by theology, he would have been completely on board, right? So when we talk about a theology of the Bible, a theology of the missions in the Bible, of missions in the Bible, we probably start with the Great Commission, right? Um, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Right? I mean, there you go. On one level, if somebody said, hey, that's my theology of missions, I would think and say, amen. That is, that's awesome. And that's entirely appropriate. But if we want to dig a little bit deeper, and I'm guessing that's why you're joining this, this breakout session, I want to suggest this, that the Great Commission is like the, uh, it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of a biblical theology of missions. An iceberg, if you will, that is built from way, way, way back in the Bible. Now, 
The reason I like to talk about it, about talk about the biblical theology of missions in terms of a story is not because the Bible is just one big long story, right? It contains a story, but obviously there is more in the Bible than just stories, right? I mean, I won't list the different kinds of things there are, but I mean, there's poems, you know, there's letters, there's um, there's proverbs, proverbs and wisdom, there are laws, there um, uh, prophecies, yeah, I mean, all, all kinds of things, right? Uh, but so when we talk about the story of the Bible, we're talking about sort of how the Bible hangs together in this sort of trajectory, right? That That's moving along and pointing towards Jesus. The other thing about understanding biblical theology as a story is if we can grab a hold of that story, even in just a simple form, and, and understand ourselves in that story and defined by that story and that as and that we are part of that story right it's because people told that story that we're all here today um, without people telling that story we wouldn't we wouldn't exist as Christians right um, and so it's it's not just a, again it's not just a thing that we look at it's the thing that we tell and that that we are and that we're called into and I like this quote from Richard Bauckham um, we all instinctively understand the world by telling stories about it, right? That's what we do every day of our lives. We tell stories. If somebody says, if, I mean, just yesterday, somebody, I met someone, um, a new colleague, and we just immediately asked each other, I mean, we didn't put in these words, we just immediately asked each other, uh, you know, what's your story? And we both just sort of, you know, gave a short version of our, of our background and, you know, kind of a little bit of a testimony. Um, but that's what we do. Right. And, and that's that's how we that's that's how we sort of function together, even if it's just telling a story about what I have, what happened to me yesterday. Um, if the Bible offers a meta narrative, that's just a fancy word for a big story that contains all the stories. Right. A story of all stories. Then we should be able to place our own stories within that grand narrative and find our own perception and experience of the world transformed by that connection. And that's the really exciting thing about a biblical theology of missions conceived as a story is that it really does, it's really meant to draw us in so that we're taking part in that and not just talking about it. And it, it and it really can, I'm telling you, it really can transform, as Bauckham says, transform your own way of looking at the world and your experience in that world. And then, of course, by by that it means your experience of connecting with other people in this world as you share with them the story that contains all the stories. Now, what I've done here is I've condensed the story into one paragraph. And I've shared this many times. I've changed it a bunch. Every time I share the story, I always say, I'm not going to share this again or a, or a slide like this or this recap because it's impossible. Though I will, I would recommend this. Um, try to put what I've said here out of your head. It's just, it's kind of a fun exercise. Um, sit down and think about how you would describe the story of the Bible in one paragraph, right? And the thing is, there's not just one way to do it, but it's 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 a little bit of a fun exercise, and sometimes I have my students do that. But here's the Vickers version, not authoritative, um, not referring to this instead of the Bible. Uh, but God created the world and created human beings who rebelled against Him. Uh, I should have put in there, you know, created it good. I should also have that turned off. Sorry. Um, attempting to become the one thing they could never be, that is creators rather than creatures. And then he set about carrying out his eternal plan to redeem them through his son, Jesus Christ, and through him to create a people who would believe, obey, and worship the only true God and make his good news of life in Christ known to a world in rebellion and finally to establish fully his kingdom in a new heaven and new earth in Christ the King or with with an end. You can't, I can't see it because a little thumbnail of me, uh, king reigning forever. So that's that's basically the story. There's obviously a lot more to say than that. Now, for our purposes, I want to start this story in maybe what might sounds like or seems like maybe a strange place, and that is a genealogy. Now, when you get to a genealogy, what, what do you think? You probably don't think of them in terms of stories too much. I think for a lot of us, a genealogy, that's just, that's the day where our daily Bible reading plan is going to go really, really fast, and we're going to get through it really quickly. Um, but genealogies, obviously, they do what we know, right? They, they give a, it's like a family tree in a way, right? Now, lots of the genealogies in the Bible, however, 
are there not just giving a record of you know this person was this person's father and mother or son or you know or whatever it's more specifically accounts of God's faithfulness and if you can see if you can see those sort of genealogies especially the ones that refer to God's people um, if you can see those as hey you know what this big list of people which on one level seems a little bit boring this is really this is really an account of God keeping his word keeping his promise that goes all the way back to right after the right at the fall right when in in Genesis 3 um, after the fall when God promises that a day is coming where the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent um, and that God is keeping this thing going and you know that when he promises Abraham that it'll be a great nation later you get these big huge lists of people that are not just lists of people it's lists of saying hey look God kept his promise but you know the story of missions uh, we could take it back further than this, but the story of missions begins with a really strange genealogy, and maybe by now you've had time to you've had time to read it. I won't read the whole thing, uh, but it's the story of Terah, the father of Abraham, and you know it goes on to talk about Abraham's wife Sarai, and it ends in this really unique place where it says, "Now Sarai was barren; she had no children." Well. What's the thing about a genealogy that ends with a guy and his wife who can't have children, right? Now, just for a second, think if you've, if you've never heard the story before, I think the first thing you'd think is, well, we're done with this guy, right? I mean, he's finished. Uh, he has no future. And that is precisely the dramatic background against which the story of missions really explodes on the scene and then never goes away for the entire Bible. Um, as God calls people, specific people, to go out and do a specific thing, and that is make him known among the nations. But it begins in a, in a situation of total hopelessness um, with this guy and his wife. And if you just turn the page, if you were on the Bible, or go to the next screen, um, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, we're pretty familiar with this text. Uh, the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I mean, that's a great promise, right? And uh, the fact that we're here today, um, and that you're listening to me talk about these things and that I have people listening to me talk about these things is a testimony to the fact that God kept that promise centuries and centuries ago to that guy, Abram, out in the desert. But what is the thing you need if you're going to be a great nation? Well, you're probably going to need kids, right? The one thing that Abraham or Abram at that time, and Sarai could not have. And so God makes this amazing promise. And if you know, I think if you read Genesis 12 against the backdrop of Genesis 11, it becomes even more amazing and mind-blowing because it's set against the backdrop of sort of human hopelessness. And then God's, <clears throat> God's message of hope and promise in the midst of that, right? So right off the bat, we need to be really, really clear that the story of missions begins as a story that if this is going to happen, God is the one who has to make it work. And that that never goes away, right? And you can carry that on into whatever it is you're doing, whatever trajectory God puts you on. If the story of missions and the, or a theology of missions is going gonna, is gonna to pour out of your life and affect other people. It's going to be for one reason and one reason alone, and that is God provides for it and God provides for it happening. God makes it happen through us. In other words, you have to look at it this way. The pressure is off of us to make it happen, right? So all we need to worry about is is understanding how God is fitting us into the story, how he folds us into the story that he is going to make happen and then use us as, as instruments, right? As ways of making of making known his mighty works, right? Just like the way he uses, this, he uses the disciples to talk about the mighty works of God. But what are they doing? They're not talking about how they're they're not focusing on their role they're focusing on their their uh their place as those who share and show right 
tell and show or show and tell both go together the mighty works of God. So the pressure is off of us. We don't have to make this thing happen. We are we are in the hands of God as those who are redeemed by God freely by his grace against this big backdrop of human hopelessness that God then pours hope and the promise of eternal life. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but it all begins back here in Genesis 11 and 12, right? As this biblical theology story. Now, 25 years goes by in the story of Abraham. That's a long time to wait for a promise. I mean, for me, 25 minutes is a stretch, but 25 years goes by and Abraham still doesn't have a child and he's getting ready to plan to give his inheritance to a guy in his household called, called Eliezer. Um, who is from Damascus. And God comes and says, hold it. You are going to be a great nation. I've given you a promise. And of course, Abraham says, God, how will this be? I don't have children. And God takes him outside and says, hey, look up at the stars and count them if you can. And he says, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed in God and God credited that belief, that belief in God as righteousness. So Abraham, so this is just the first time the word faith is mentioned explicitly, but we know in, 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 the, in the Bible, starting from Genesis, but we know Abraham's already believed. We can see it in the narrative. And if that's not enough, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11 says Abraham left his home by faith. But right here, I think Moses breaks in and says to us, Hey, you know what makes a person right before God? Faith. Faith in God's promise. Faith in God makes a person right before God, right? So it's not, you think about it, it's not Abraham's effort to fulfill God's promise through Eliezer. God, sort of God sort of shuts that down. What is it? It's Abraham's belief that God will be who he says he is, has done what he says he's going to do, right? Referring back to the first promise. And on the basis of that, his promise for the future is guaranteed. And so Abraham can do what? Abraham can go about his life living in the present, secure and resting by faith in God. And that's what, and that's uh, credit to his righteousness. That means Abraham's in a good, right relationship with God by faith alone. And that never changes, right? So, so in, in our carrying out this biblical theology of missions, it's never about putting ourselves into like, into like good standing with God. It is working from the starting point of being in a good, right relationship with God, sins forgiven, and God counting us as those who have who have done everything that's pleasing to him. Now, of course, we have to wait for the story to understand how that, how that folds out, how that unfolds. Right. So I'm often asked in about a biblical theology of missions, you know, is there an Old Testament or old covenant missions, right? So I've skipped ahead quite a bit um, just for the sake of time. My answer to that is always a somewhat uncomfortable no. There is not an old covenant missions in the way we think of missions. And the reason for that, the reason I'm confident about that is there just isn't uh, because there's not yet a message. Now that doesn't mean that nobody in the Old Testament ever shared the story of the God of Israel with others. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that all outsiders never came to believe in the God of Israel. I don't mean it by, like that. All I mean is there was no great commission in the uh, in the Old Covenant the way there is in the New Covenant because the Great Commission is given once there is what? A message of the fulfillment of those promises. And, and again, it doesn't mean that nobody ever shared those promises ahead of time. It's just, I think we need to be careful about how we speak about it. And then also recognize this. You can read the whole Old Testament because I, I sometimes talk about this and there's people who get, well, let's just say they disagree with me. But then sometimes I'll just say, well, so give me some examples. And, you know, they might quote, say, from the New Testament, right? You know, that, or, or they, sorry, they might quote from the Bible just generally and say something like, you know, that, you know, people will, they would cross the oceans to make proselytes. Okay, so, okay, that's fine, right? That, and I believe that. But give me a lot of examples of like the Israelites going out to the nations in the, in a great commission like fashion. I mean, it just didn't take place that way. And the other thing is, is the Gentile believers, they kind of stand out for lots of reasons. But one of the reasons they stand out is there's not there's not the same focus on reaching in the Old Covenant as there is in the New Covenant. And again, I think it's 
I think it's completely tied to the message of God's fulfillment of this story in Jesus. But are there Gentiles? Yeah. There's Tamar. There's Rahab. There's Ruth. Now, anything you might, something that might strike you about all three of them is, number one, they're all Gentiles. And number two, all of them appear in the genealogies of who? Jesus of Nazareth. So you have these sort of Gentiles folded into the the uh, the genealogies of the Messiah, right? With you know um, connected obviously to David and then to Jesus. Um, the other things you have Nahum, Nahum and the the Syrian. You have the the Shumanite woman. You might remember her story. And then of course the tragic story of Uriah the Hittite. Um, you know this. So we have the we have these um, people named. Right, people we might you know sort of faithful Gentiles, but there's not a ton of them named because the focus of the Bible, biblical story in the Old Testament, is not on the Gentiles in that way at that moment. And honestly, I just think that I think that it's hard to argue against that. And not just because I'm right, it's just because if we if we think about what is actually in the Bible, what we see is this. This nation of Israel primarily called to be Israel and to witness, to witness, I'm not saying there's never any witness, to witness to the glory of God by being Israel in Israel, in the place of Israel. See, I've taught you my decrees and laws. Uh, the Lord God commanded me, this is Moses speaking, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering and take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. So they will display it to the nations, but by doing what? What Moses says being in the land and being faithful Israel. That's their calling. Um, because really, the big movements towards the nations in the Old Covenant were what? Going into exile as a result of not doing, of not fulfilling texts like Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6. It's because they, they didn't, um, as a whole, I'm not saying there was no people, but they didn't as a whole fulfill their job of staying put and witnessing to who God is by how they treated each other, their, 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 their ideas of justice, uh, their worship, the way they dressed, the way they kept their fields, the way they took care of the way they were supposed to take care of, of, uh, of um, outsiders or foreigners coming in, the way they're supposed to take care of widows and orphans. Um, all these kind of things um, were testimonies to them being a special, unique people. And that was that was primarily their witness. Now, having said that, the idea of the story going out to the nations is embedded in the Old Testament story. Before, I was just sort of talking about the, the taking it to the nations part. I would never say there's no theology of missions in the Old Testament, but it's primarily a theology of promise, right? Like starting with Abraham, but then that story, sorry, that's promised to Abraham through you, all the nations of earth will be blessed. That is remembered and picked up and repeated and recited through the Old Testament, right? Because Israel was not meant ultimately just, I mean, the war, the story of God that Israel had was not meant ultimately just to sit there in one place. It was going to go out, right? And so in Psalm 86, 9, all the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. Isaiah 12:4. In that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Right? And so again, the story, this promise to Abraham, it's moving forward. It's always pushing, pushing, pushing forward. It's not static. Right? Again, all I was talking about earlier was Israel's main job was to stay there and witness to God as Israel, right? Which would include showing mercy and compassion to the nations, right? But not in a great commission, go into all the world kind of way. That's all I mean by that. That's coming as you see in these promises, right? So again, uh, through you, all the nations of the earth, Isaiah 66, 19, I will set a sign among them. I will send them, those who survive to the nations. Um, sometimes it's referred to as like the survivors of Israel, those who survived the exile to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers. I, I love the fact that that's thrown in there to Tubal and to Greece and to the distant lands, 
that they uh, that have not heard of my fame nor seen my glory, they will proclaim my glory among the nations. So Isaiah, and in and, and this part of Isaiah, he's completely looking forward to this great time of fulfillment of God's promises uh, connected to the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of God's people. And it's hardwired, when that time comes, it's hardwired to this idea that the promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. It's already been fulfilled in the sense of the nation of Israel, right? That's like the, so, you know, Abraham and the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the the 12 and then the the 12 tribes of Israel from there right that is a fulfillment but it's an ongoing fulfillment because it's all the nations but it's it's pushing forward as a promise and in the meantime it's 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 collecting if you will these promises uh towards towards the nations people not just ideas but people then Habakkuk for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea again promise pushing forward till finally the promise to Abraham is reaches its fulfillment and this is sort of how it works through uh, it sort of cycles through one man like Adam then between Adam and Abraham you have the, the you have the I mean it's not a it's not a pleasant story usually but you have the you have the growth of the human race or the beginning of the nations um, you even have it before Abraham you even have a table of the nations that is the sort of where the nations have come from and then it so you, then it narrows down and focuses down to Abraham and then it it sort of narrows down uh, or maybe we could say it it opens up to include one whole nation Right, but still, uh, you know, but it's it's a larger group. It's not just one person. And then the whole thing, the whole thing focuses down finally into the fulfillment of this story, this promise to Abraham in the one man Jesus of Nazareth. And from him, it goes out to the nations. And this is this sort of one to many, one to many, one to many. It, just getting a hold of that fact alone is enough to start sort of building a biblical theology of missions. Now, I've really skipped forward now going fast. You remember how I talked about the, the promise to Abraham against the backdrop, right, of, of, of human sort of hopelessness. And it's so shocking, right? But nothing is as shocking as Luke 2 where all these promises through you all the nations of the earth be blessed the uh, you know the knowledge of the knowledge of the glory uh, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth like the oceans cover the sea right the nations will come and worship God the people who have never heard of my name will hear it think of those promises now think of the shocking and surprising way that God brings those promises to their fulfillment it happens in a baby and you have the story of Simeon, this old man in the temple, and this little, this young couple um, come, comes in. They would have looked like any couple, and they bring this baby in, and this baby would have looked like any baby, right? He wouldn't have been a pastel sort of floating baby with a halo. He would have been a baby and looking like a baby, and, and it's really important for us um, that he came in like a baby, and not a floating halo baby, pastel colored. Um, it's extraordinarily important for us. But whatever the case, he comes in and think about it. This old man, he picks the baby up. You could have held this baby in one hand and he says, look, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to, and for glory to your people Israel. Now that's an, that's an amazing thing. Because Simeon's saying, in this baby, and of course the baby is Jesus, of, uh, the baby Jesus from Nazareth, right? Um, the son of a, this, a carpenter's son and the son of Mary. He looks and says, it's happening. It's happening right here in my hand, in this little baby. I mean, that's one of the most shocking and mind-blowing things in the entire Bible. Uh, and that's how God is fulfilling this promise, right? So you see the promise. And so again, again, it's really, I guess, you know, just to go back again, the idea is that the promise to the nations is pushing forward, pushing forward by God, who is pushing it forward 
through Israel, right? And even Israel's exile and coming back. And then he brings them back. And once he brings them back and they're established again, they kind of get up to their old tricks. But God pushes it and keeps pushing, not pushing people around, but pushing his promise forward and then fulfilling it in the most shocking of ways in, the, in, the, in a baby, right? And so Paul reflects back on this whole thing and says, hey, you know, those promises uh, to Abraham and his seed, it does not say to seeds as many, but rather to your seed, that is Christ. So Paul understands the promise to Abraham, the real fulfillment of the seed is not just God's going to do a whole bunch of things and then there's going to be Israel and then, um, and then, and then you're going to get Jesus. No, Jesus is the seed. He is the fulfillment. And by seed here, the easy way to think about it, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to the nations because he is the light to the nations. He is the hope for the nations. He is the one in whom, through whom, and about whom we go out into the world to spread the word of God because we have this message of fulfillment. And that's what... That's what the Great Commission, if you will, was waiting for, this message of fulfillment about God has kept his promise to the true seed, that is Jesus. Now, when you come back to the Great Commission, I won't read the whole thing again, it's right there. Uh, I like to sometimes think of it as the Great Fulfillment Commission. So it's not just the marching order for missions. Um, and missions by that, by the way, I don't think I've said this missions. I don't, I see that as going to the ends of the earth, by the way, we're already in the ends of the earth. Missions didn't start here. Uh, I mean, I know not all of you are here, but you know, missions obviously, and we need to remind ourselves this every day. If we live here, missions did not start in North America. Uh, we are part of the nations. Um, <clears throat> but whether you are traveling, uh, or living, uh, you know, away from your home, or whether it means, you know, going across your street, um, you know, the fulfillment of the Great Commission is us carrying this message out to say what? God kept his promise. In other words, and so again, it's not just our marching orders, like from scratch, right? Like you went and enrolled or, you know, you enrolled, you signed up, enlisted. Finally, if I knew if I just said enough words, I'd get it. You go down, you sort of enlist in this sort of com Great Commission army. You get your marching papers. It's the Great Commission and you're off. No, it's got this whole entire backdrop of the Bible that, that fills it, that defines it, that uh, encourages it and that, you know, fuels it on because think about it. What is the, what's the message? The message is when you go out and share and show and tell the mighty works of God, what are you saying to people? God's kept his promise to the nations. God kept his promise to a man centuries and centuries ago out who lived in a place called Haran from Ur of the Chaldees. God took him uh, one, one night outside of tent and showed him the stars. God kept all those promises to that man in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, a man who on the face of everything was facing hopelessness with no children and through that man through that man god is now making his mighty works known to all people fulfilling all of his promises as the as the bible says all of his promises are yes and amen in jesus so right that's our job is to be living in this world, sharing this biblical story of Jesus and understanding it's not just a story about Jesus. It's a story that includes us and how God folded us into this story through faith in Jesus, right? So when you tell your testimony, you can hardwire it into the story of the Bible, right? So we don't just have to tell the story of the Bible and then also tell our story. I mean, you can do it that way. But when you do tell your own story, we need to be thinking, hey, you know what? My story, which, you know, to many of us, when we think of our own story, it might seem insignificant, like when maybe we didn't have a really dramatic conversion experience, or maybe we don't have like a really dramatic day to day or week to week or month to month or year to year. But what could be more dramatic than saying, through God's grace, I have been folded into the story of how God is making his mighty works known into the whole world.
right? And it's not about how significant or big we are, um, how well known we are, um, or even the scope that God gives us. And, you know, I, I pray that God will give us all the, the biggest scope possible, but it never comes down to how big is your scope? How many gifts do you have? The thing is, is you are part of the story. I am part of the story and we're part of the biblical story, which means there's always something greater than us. And that is the mighty works of God. And all we have to do is not worry about big, small, great, um, you know, scope, all those kind of things. Um, we don't have to worry about that. We can leave that in God's hands to do with us as he will, as he wills. But our job, our job is never different, right? To So whether it's to one person or to hundreds or more, whether it's, you know, in your town or across the world, whether it's in relative safety or in places that are, that are more dangerous. Um, and again, I'm not just trying to flatten out every experience. All I'm trying to say is wherever we are and whatever it is God has called us to do, it is connected to this big story of, hey, you know what? God keeps his promises and has. And the whole thing began in Acts with the, the disciples with this great theological question. When they say to Jesus, Lord, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, you may have heard sometimes people saying, here are the disciples. They just still don't get it. They're just still asking bad questions. This is, this is a better theological and more biblically grounded question than any question I've ever asked in my whole life. Because you have to know the Bible to ask this question. Besides, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, oh, how long will I put up with you? You know, he doesn't say any of those things. He just says, hey, it's not for you to know the times, but you will receive power uh, when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. Now, the reason that's a great question is because the disciples understand, by the way, they've just been taught by Jesus for 40 days. And it would seem weird to cap that off with the disciples asking, you know, a nonsensical question. But sometimes we take it that way. We shouldn't. It's a great question. I'll show you why. Ezekiel 37. Uh, God is speaking to, uh, uh, to Ezekiel and he says, hey, take a stick, write on it, on this stick for Judah. And the people of and the people of Israel associate with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. Right. So this is uh, this is uh, the house of Israel associated with him. So right, like the northern and southern kingdoms that have been split. Join them into one, that they may become one in your hand. Right. So the kingdom, the kingdom is restored. And when your people say, "Who will tell us what this means?" Say, "Behold." I'm about to take the stick of Joseph, that is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with it the stick of Judah, southern kingdom, and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. So the kingdom will be restored. When? when? In this future time of blessing. And the apostles understand, hey, we're in the future time of blessing. The Messiah has come and he's defeated death and he's, he's, ris he's risen again. Um, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the son of David, the Messiah. The kingdom is restored. This is what happens when the Messiah comes. And so they're like, hey, this is why they ask him. Is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? Now, Isaiah 49 is the other piece of this. Isaiah talks about he who formed me from the womb to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? And to bring back the preserved of Israel. And look, when that happens, when they are reunited, when they're brought back and reunited, I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here's this brilliant question the disciples ask. Because they understand the times. I mean, Jesus has been teaching them. for They've, they've witnessed Jesus post-resurrection. He's been teaching them about the kingdom for 40 days. They ask this great question. And look how, but look, see, the background of that question comes from these Old Testament promises about the nations, but it's going to happen when the, when the country, when the nation, the nation of Israel, the two kings is restored and it's restored now in Jesus and the disciples. It's happened. And now what, now what's going to happen is it's going to go out into the nation as promised, right? And then you get the story of Acts. 
Jerusalem, and then Samaria, and then up the Mediterranean coast, into Phrygia, and Galatia, and Macedonia, and finally to Rome, and at the end of Acts, Rome, which is referred to as the ends of the earth, the gospel has gone out in short order in this sort of first generation of the disciples. What's going on? What's going on? The kingdom has been restored in Jesus. He's brought the whole thing to its to its uh, uh, to its fulfillment, and now the disciples are going out and saying, "What God keeps His promise." Now, the blessing to Abraham is going out to the nations. What's the blessing of Abraham? What's the blessing? We go into all the world. Um, what does it what is it going out in the world and saying, "Hey, God keeps His promise." That is the blessing to the nations. The blessing the blessing promised to the nations through Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus. That's how the nations are blessed. And it all fits together in this beautiful story. And again, you have Adam to the nations, nations to Abraham, Abram out to Israel, Israel down to Jesus, Jesus out to the nations in one coherent, glorious story of how God keeps his word. And that should encourage us, right? Uh, the a biblical theology of missions should, I mean, it should fuel us. It should fill us with excitement thinking, wow, this is not just simply going out and telling people, hey, to be a Christian, you don't do these things, but you do these things, right? Are there do's and don'ts? Of course, I'm not denying that. But the big news is what? Hey, the story of the world is the story of God and his mighty works fulfilled in Jesus. Let me share this story with you because it is my story, right? And that's why, that's why, we can be great practitioners by being what? Great theologians of the story of the Bible, that sharing it, not just knowing stuff about it, right? And this is just something I stole from uh, from Matt Chandler. It's just a, a little bit of an overview of how you know the, the word went out. You have Paul, and then 52, you have Thomas. 54, you have Paul's third missionary journey. By 174, there's Christians in Austria. 280, there's Christians in North Italy. By uh, 350, half the Roman Empire claims Christianity. There's, I know there's a lot of like sketchiness about that story. Um, 432, Patrick in Ireland. Uh, 596, Augustine. That's not St. Uh, Augustine, or sometimes people call him Augustine, who wrote the Confessions. Uh, that's a different one who went to um, England. Uh, by two years later, there's like 10,000 Christians up there. And then by 635, there's missionaries in China, 740 Irish missionaries go to Iceland, 900 missionaries arrive in Norway. By 1200, there's the Bible in 12, 22 languages. By 1498, Christianity spread to Kenya. And then I sort of put it into fast forward to kind of trace kind of how it got to, you know, how it got down to where I'm sitting. You know, everybody's trajectory is going to be different. You have like Jesuit movements and then the the, the, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and then the modern missions movement. Uh, I've actually reversed. I got the order out of whack here a little bit. And then up to England uh, and then the European immigrants, right? Not just from England. And then the Great Awakenings and then the Westward Expansion uh, down to Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not saying anything cultural or political about any of those things i'm just saying through those things you know the gospel reaches a place that is eventually called louisville kentucky and now i'm sitting here as a recipient this is all i want to this is the only point i'm trying to make as a recipient of what the great gift that god has given his people to tell the story of jesus um, and if I'm sitting here talking about it and claiming it by faith, and if you're sitting wherever it is you are, it's because there's some sort of string that you could connect all the way back. I'm not talking about like you could connect the dots exactly or some sort of trail or anything like that. But the fact is, since Peter walked down on the steps of the temple and said, a man attested by the mighty works of God. And people heard the apostles talking about the mighty works of God in their own language. People shared that story, lived that story, inhabited that story, and pushed that story along through showing it and telling it, telling it boldly in all sorts of situations, great and small, dangerous or safe, um, all over the world that has come down to us today. It is our story, this great commission 
biblical theology of missions. So I hope it's been helpful for you. Um, it's been a little long, I know. Um, and thanks for hanging in there. And I look forward to seeing you uh, at the conference when we can meet for a little bit of um, back and forth and face to face. But God be with you. Peace in Christ.